0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast, presented by Toyota. That's right, we have a new sponsor, so thanks to Toyota for its support. And we feature a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. I'm Len Casper, along with Jim Deshays. He's my television partner, and hopefully we will be on television here in the next month or so. More on that a little later today. Hey, J.D., how's your week going?
1: Hi, Len. It's going great. I have relocated to, to a place on the river we have uh, way up in the northernmost part of New York State, and winding down a couple weeks here. This is where its uh, you can't do anything but socially distance here. It's very remote up here, but it's, uh, it's been great, and we're heading back to Chicago this weekend. How are things in your world?
0: Uh, Okay, we've had a lot of rain here the last couple of days, and the heat and humidity of August has hit Chicago here in mid-June, but that's okay, summer has arrived. (laughs) Today's guest is Hall of Famer Billy Williams, one of our all-time favorites. Billy was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1961, a six-time All-Star. He won the Major League Batting title in 1972, 426 career home runs, And he had basically a one-to-one walk-to-strikeout ratio. Pretty amazing. 18 years in the major leagues, 16 as a Chicago Cub. J.D., we will talk with Billy a lot about his career and some of the greats uh, he played with and against. But uh, about the first half of our conversation is about what's going on in our world and uh, some pretty heavy stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Billy was born in uh, in the rural South in Alabama. He grew up with segregation. He signed a professional contract at the age of 18, right out of high school, and off he went. And he had to deal with a lot of um, racist idiots <laughs> to tell you the truth, and, and just institutional racism. Um, and it's just heartbreaking to hear those stories, but they're important stories to hear. And it's obviously a big part of, of his history and his legacy and, and, and many others who played the game in that era uh it's just a a wonderful conversation with a great man
0: well let's get right to it enjoy our chat with sweet swinging billy williams hey billy thanks for doing this today uh how are you
2: I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. After the, uh, after the, uh, Corona thing and after the, uh, the, uh, funeral yesterday, I'm doing fine. Doing, everything's good. You know, just protecting myself and protecting the family and making sure everybody come in the house to see Shirley wear a mask. So it's, uh, it's a thing. It's kind of easing up now. I'd be glad when they find a uh, uh, something, uh, uh the cutest Thanks. stuff. man. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we will talk some baseball today but um after the horrific death of George Floyd which you mentioned we've seen
2: yeah.
0: daily protests throughout the country uh, against mm-hmm. police brutality and for equal right. treatment for minorities um what are your what are your thoughts about what's going on right now in our country
2: Well I'm 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 looking at that and uh I'm just looking at what happened on this particular time I think because people had cameras and people began to have cameras in the last few days. And I think uh, the brutality has been going along a long time, but all of a sudden, you know, people standing around now, you could get the uh, camera and and uh, shoot what's going on. So it's it's, it's a rough time in, uh, in, in the life of a black person now.
1: Billy, you strike me um, as a very optimistic person um, do you lose hope? Do you lose optimism when you see this and it's gone on for so long and it keeps rearing its ugly head?
2: Well, I, I, I am. I am because of uh, all of the protests in the past. Uh, you know, you see a lot of uh, people protesting. But now when you look at the protests, you see kids from, I guess, from 18 years old to 25 and. Black people marching, white people marching, brown people marching. And I think uh, we're at a crossroad now. And I think something's going to happen out of this. I I really feel that it will because uh, so many people standing behind what's going on. I see it's a funny thing. You know, you see white people with uh, signs above their heads say Black Lives Matter, which we know. You know, and and this is what's got to happen. Everybody got to get in on this and have conversation about where we go from here.
0: You dealt with a lot uh, of this stuff uh, very specifically, and, and we can get into that here in a second. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious about your grandkids and the conversations uh, you're having with them and what they've experienced. I would like to think that they've had a, a lot better than you did, but we still obviously have a long way to go.
2: This is true, uh, Lynn. I I think, uh, you know, when they come over to the house, we sit down and we talk, and they know that uh, things happened with me when I first went off to play baseball, and I tell them about the incident, many incidents that happened. But I guess at that time, I looked at the big picture. I wanted to play the game of baseball, and, you know, when you you look at uh, what Jackie Robinson went through, I just got a ripple of it. Uh, many different places I went, and, and I was called names. Sure, I was called names. Down in Parker City, when I first went off to play baseball, you talking about a lonely individual. I was the only uh, black person on the baseball team, so I had to travel around, and people had to uh, go in restaurants. I couldn't go in a restaurant to eat. And uh, fellas, uh, Jim Brewer was a real good friend of mine. He pitched for the Dodgers. And he was sure. from Broken Air, Oklahoma, and we got along real well. And he used to go in the restaurant, and uh, when they went in to eat, they would get their food in there. So he would make sure that when he come out, he bring me food on the bus because I couldn't go in the restaurant to eat.
0: Mm. You know, this is a tough. This is a tough one. Um, You've always been yourself since I've known you. Yes, I have. But I'm curious, when you were 18 or 19, did you feel like you had to adapt in certain circumstances and maybe not be yourself all the time? Because, you know, when JD and I get on a plane now, just in terms of culturally, right? Uh-huh. You've got uh, uh-huh. a, a lot of Spanish-speaking players and you hear the the, the music and, um, you know, everybody kind of has their own little uh, thing that they're into. Uh-huh. And if there's a moment in time where you're into something and other people don't understand it and you feel like that could cause problems for you, I'm curious how you dealt with that.
2: Well, you know, the, the thing is, I was raised up in the South, so I knew where to go, when to go. And uh, as I move up the ladder to play Major League Baseball, play baseball. There were times, you know, you look at it uh, uh, culturally, different guys have they different culture, what they do. You mentioned, you know, the Latin players play, have their uh, culture. And some of the white boys, they'd be together and they, you know, do things. And, of course, the black guys do their thing. And it's, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment for white guys, an adjustment for black guys because, a lot of times, uh, individuals play the game of baseball. They haven't been around too many blacks, so they have to make an adjustment too, and uh, it's a it's a it's a constant adjustment for both parties. When you're in the sporting world, when you're playing team team sport.
1: Right. When you when you went to Ponca City when you first signed out of high school, I mean, you left literally like two days after high school, right?
2: I did. I so you're
1: 18 years old, and you go off to play ball, and then you have to deal. And, and you, you know, being from the segregated South, you were aware of uh, of the way some people thought and behaved. But now you're out there as a as a young man trying to earn a living in a, in a world and people are, you know, just treating you so poorly.
2: You know, one of the things, uh, JD, when I left to go to Ponca City, and I was thinking uh, Ponca City is beyond the diction line. I didn't think Oklahoma was segregated when I left home because I was young. And not knowing too much about what's going on out, out in the world, and I remember boarding a bus, two and a half days. I'm riding two and a half days, and uh, I was picked up at the at the uh, at the bus station, and I was taken to these uh, individuals' home. It was a private home we were staying at, and at that time, uh, Lou Johnson, uh, Sam Drake. Guy here, he you live here. Chick Greenwood passed away, and uh, Gilmore, and uh, you know it made it made it kind of easy, you know. When I walked in the in the house, uh, you know, met these individuals who played with Ponca City. That was my first year, nineteen fifty six, right after I finished school. But the second year, when I went to Ponca City, I uh, I was the only, as I said, the only black kid on the ball club, so. It made it tough traveling around but uh it 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 you know it was tough but uh there's there's some adjustments sure you have to make
0: did your identity and the fact that you weren't always put in a very comfortable situation actually in some ways make you the ball player you turned out to be
2: i think so i think so when i uh when I started out playing baseball and i see the uh i see the prejudice. Uh, stuff that went on while I was playing baseball. And I began to look at the big picture. I wanted to play the game. And I remember when I was in uh, 1959, I was at uh, uh, San Antonio, Texas. And after playing for a couple of years, I said, I'm tired of this game. I'm tired of this game because of all the things that happened, you know, waiting on the bus. And it happened then. Waiting on the bus, driving back from different cities. I had to sit on the bus and wait till people bring me food. JC Hartman was my teammate at the time. We had to sit on the bus until people bring food. And uh, I just got tired of it. Grady Hatton was the manager. And uh, I, I asked JC when I got back to the hotel, I said, Jay, take me to the airport, uh, take me to the train station, matter of fact. And uh, J.C. said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. I'm tired of this stuff, man. Yeah. But uh, he said, I'm not going to take you, man. You serious about going home? I said, yes, I am. He said, you are serious, ain't you? I said, if you don't take me, I'm going to catch a cab. So he said, uh, I'll take you. So I went home and stayed for about seven days. And uh, in the meantime, I was making so much progress in the organization because I'm, I'm hitting over 300 at that time down in San Antonio. And uh, Grady Hatton was the manager. And normally, J.C. and I would ride the park together. And when I didn't come to the park that evening with J.C., and uh, Grady Hatton asked Billy, asked J.C., where was Billy? And uh, J.C. said, he's going home. So it was a big thing at that time because I was making so much progress. And John Holland, who was the general manager of the Cubs, he got in touch with Buck O'Neill and for about uh, you know a day and a half I was home uh, doing my thing, fishing and just enjoying life. And uh, Buck O'Neill used to drive a Fury all the time so I saw this Fury coming up in the yard and I said, oh, I'm in trouble now. So Buck came down and we talked, we enjoyed life. He took me down to uh, where I used to play baseball and I stayed home for about a week, so I went back, and Buck convinced me to go back. So I went back into San Antonio, and uh, things began to look up at that time. I I began to enjoy baseball a little bit more. I I had to make some adjustments, so I was looking at the big big picture at the time. I looked at myself making the progress that I had made, and I said, M- "Might not be long. I could play major league baseball." So I started looking at the big picture and. It all worked out. You know, sure it's Billy.
1: Excuse me, <laughs> Len, but Billy, you've used the term "make adjustments" three or four times now, and, and most players, when they talk about making adjustments, it's you know to their batting stance or you know, you know learn a new pitch or whatever. You're talking about, and, and, and I'm reading between the lines here, but you're talk, the, the adjustments you're talking about making is living in this system that you can't go into the restaurant with your teammates and just at some point going, okay, uh, I'm just going to have to live with this. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's—you must have been seething with anger, but you, you still said, "Okay, I, you know, this is what I got to do to get to where I want to want to be."
2: Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. You know, uh, when you look at the, what I went through and what you look at what Jackie Robinson went through, I guess that's—that was a wake-up call when he came to the big league, and uh, he had to make some adjustments, and uh, that's what I had to do. You know, as I come in, I, the culture. My culture and white culture was two different things, and I, and and I had certain places to go, and and I couldn't I couldn't go different places to really enjoy things. So I had to make an adjustment, go somewhere else, go to the uh, uh, black motel, and where I could really have a lot of fun. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about your life and your career, really, you know, paralleling a very important time culturally in our country. You mentioned Jackie. Uh, and and the the big last speech uh, he gave, All he right. talked about a, a black manager in baseball, and he passed away, I believe, before uh, Frank Robinson was hired uh, to manage uh, the Cleveland Indians. I think of 1968. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, a Chicago Cub at that time, but uh, there was a lot of upheaval uh, in the country. How much did you pay attention to uh, what was going on in the country, not specifically related? to the game of baseball, the Civil Rights Act in, uh, uh, what, 1964, 65. I mean, that whole era.
2: How did you follow that? Well, it's a lot of stuff happened in the 60s. And uh, being from uh, Mobile, Alabama, I remember I didn't move to Chicago until 1966. Therefore, after the baseball season, I would drive back and forth to, to Mobile, my hometown. And that was, I would go to Birmingham and Montgomery. And there were National Guards standing on the corners and to to, to, to to deal with that, going home. And all of a sudden, you say, you know, things are not right. Things are not right. I think the bus boycott was going at that time. And later on, uh, you know, when, when I started playing baseball, uh, 19, what was that, when the— uh, when when when, when not, we, we, we were having an exhibition game. We were going to play an exhibition game, 68. We we were playing an exhibition game over in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. And I remember coming back from uh, spring training. And as I walked in the hotel unpacking my bag, and it came over the uh, television that uh, Martin Luther King had passed away. So it really hurt it because here's a guy you know, uh, preaching nonviolence, nonviolence, trying to, uh, trying to correct the country that, uh, everybody was, uh, you know, doing their own thing. And he tried to correct the country and he was killed. And, uh, it was, it was tough at that time. And, and, uh, you know, you think about those things, you think about those things now in a situation like this, uh, here's a kid that, uh, you know, it was in Minnesota, and it was said that uh, a $20 bill he walked in, it was supposed to be a, a counterfeit $20 bill. And all of a sudden, you know, he dies on the knee of an individual who has been on the police force 18 years. and 17 years, he'd been disciplined. And we don't find out this particular thing, how this person is still being a policeman. And those are the kind of things you think about.
0: No question. Um, I want to ask you about your relationship with Shirley. And um, I I know she's had a real tough time here. Uh, How long have you been married?
2: We've been married uh, 60 years. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. That's February the 25th. We Amazing. were uh, 60 years. Amazing. And I remember when I went to uh triple A to play baseball. That's when we got married. And
0: well, let's bring her into this conversation because I'm sure uh, you uh, and Shirley had a lot of these talks mm-hmm. about what was going on in the world at that time. And, and I have no doubt that she counseled you through some of these tough times.
2: Well, she did. She did. And uh, she. She saw me playing in uh, uh, Houston. And I remember Lou Johnson and I, we made it to AAA. Lou Johnson's wife was there. We were staying at the uh, Mingo Motel in uh, Houston, Texas. We were staying on Sunnyside. And, uh, Jay, you you probably know what Sunnyside is in Houston. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, Shirley and Lou Johnson's wife, they couldn't st- sit in their stands with with uh, otherwise so they were sitting down in the first baseline and, uh behind some chicken wire, and so that night after the game we started discussing you know what it was like to uh, uh, to be the, you know the individuals to sit there and watch the game and see everybody else having fun and we had to do that and there were times in Chicago you know, if I go in a place, uh, they look at me and they don't know who I am. Until I got established, they didn't know who I am or were. But all of a sudden, they find out this is Billy Williams play with the Cubs. And I could see the difference how I was approached at the time when I was just a, 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 a black person. The next time, they know that I played baseball for the Cubs. So it was a different in that era.
1: So the situation where your, your, your wives had to sit in a different part of the stadium, was that just the stadium itself was segregated, like white people sat over here and black people sat over here?
2: This is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah. We, we couldn't sit. Shirley and them couldn't sit with the white wives. They had to sit in a little section that was uh, that was made for, for Shirley and Lou Johnson's wife because they were only two black uh, individuals, on wives on the baseball team. And so they had to sit down to uh, sit down. To, to and, right and, a,
1: and I'm assuming it would, it would have been a pretty courageous act for one of the white wives to go over and join your wives. They were probably, even if they were inclined to do so, they were probably afraid of the pushback they would get from you know, stadium officials or whomever.
2: Well, it, that, 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 that was the case. That was the case. You know, they, they were separated and, uh, they stayed separated. They couldn't go over there. It's just like, uh, you know, when we were in uh, when we were in Arizona, and it was a tough time out there trying to get a place to live. And I I think when you walk around and you see places, you see signs saying, you know, for rent. So you walk up and try to get a uh, a place to live in Mesa, Arizona, and all of a sudden, the, 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 the saying was that we will rent you this place. We would rent you this place but I don't know how the tenants will accept it. The other tenants in the in the thing. And of course, this is kind of like what happened when we were sitting in the stands in, uh, at the Houston stadium.
1: That
0: is just heartbreaking. Um, Billy, thank you for opening up on, on these often difficult topics. And, uh, You know, as I said, I I think we are, we have made some progress, but we have a long, long way to go.
2: Yeah, we do. We have a long way to go. But I think, uh, I think we're at the crossroad now. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened the other day with, uh, not the other day, that were three or four people killed the other day, black people killed the other day. But I think one of the things that happened now, this has been going on for a long time, Mm -hmm. Uh, this, this kind of. Uh, prejudice been going along for a long time, when people getting shot, when people getting killed. And all of a sudden, the police report is different. What happened, uh, you know, it, it was aggressive. But now, with the cell phones, you know, everybody got a cell phone now. Yeah. And I think this is what happened in the last couple of days last week and happened in last year. And I think you'll begin to see this kind of thing happening now. You can't do anything wrong now and get by. Uh, You got to do the right thing. You got to treat people as they are. You know, you got to accept people. And uh, this is the thing we got to do. And I think this is uh, the turning point happened in the last, I guess, three weeks when I see, as I said, when I see white people, Black people, brown people, young people, old people, walking, marching and trying to to, 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 to you know, get the country at its best. Because as I would travel around, as I would travel around, and I see police cars, I see police cars. And on those police cars, I remember seeing serve and protect, serve and protect. But that has gone out the window from time to time. That's what they're there for—to serve and protect. And because of the camera, they begin to do that now because yeah. well, they can't well do wrong and get by. Yep.
0: Yeah. One, one last question on on this particular topic, Billy. Um, speaking of of the wives being separated uh, during the game, and JD mentioning that the the courage it would have taken for Uh, one of the wives of the white ball player to come over. Um, And if there's no specific person that stands out, that's fine. But was there a teammate or someone along the way, a white teammate of yours who you thought showed a lot of courage and specifically and very visibly tried to break that tension and make sure that you knew that you were his teammate just like everybody else?
2: I think one of the guys I mentioned his name to start with was Jim Brewer. He was from uh, Mm -hmm. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And uh, Jim Brewer and I got along real well uh, when we were playing uh, Class D League down in Parker City, Oklahoma. And then eventually he played with the Cubs. And uh, eventually he went to Dodgers. So when we would go to Los Angeles, he would pick me up and we'll go fishing when we was in Los Angeles. And when, we, when he played here, we'd go to Houston. We would go fishing in Houston. We would go to Galveston. So I thought he was pretty close. He was a guy that I could trust, I could, you know, talk to. And uh, I enjoyed being with him. Matter of fact, his uh, his wife made mention of when I was playing in Parker City. And an, as an article came out, and she talked about Jim Brewer and myself, how we got along, and how we enjoyed each other, because an incident happened down in, uh, down in Ponca City, when I was playing down there, and things happened, and uh, she said Lou was a real good friend of mine, and and, uh, we got along real well.
0: That's great, that's great, let's talk some baseball, Uh, you mentioned, you stuck with it in 1959, and couple years later you would be the national league rookie of the year billy you were a very modern player uh and i think a lot of what you did was appreciated but a lot of what you did wasn't you walked 1045 times you struck out 1046 and you were a power hitter um so i'm sure the strikeouts today bother you to no end but uh on-base percentage was not something that was discussed widely back then. You had a career 361 on-base percentage. So in terms of taking walks, did did you seek it out, or was it simply if a guy didn't challenge you, you would just take your base and uh, hand it to the next guy in the lineup?
2: Well, I think the biggest thing, I hit strikes. You know, when mm-hmm. guy hit strikes, I swing the bat. And uh, it was the thing when I first come to the big league, I was hitting third, and Ernie was hitting fourth. So with Ernie hitting those home runs, you know, I told myself, I got to get on base for Ernie. And there were times, you know, I maybe went up to take a walk where Ernie could swing the bat. But uh, most of the time, you know, uh, uh, talking to Rogers Hunby and we talked really about when you play baseball, when you as a hitter, you're going to get one good pitch to hit. And when you get that pitch, don't miss it. So I was pretty I was pretty uh, a strike ball strike hitter right? I swung the bat but I made sure the ball is over the plate at that time it was a hump um to your knees you know a wider strike zone and but I I was pretty disciplined at the plate and I think one thing that happened because I realized I could get the bat to the ball quick and uh, I, that that allowed me to wait a little longer than the average guy, I guess. And uh, I used the whole field. So I, I, I didn't worry about taking a walk. I just wanted to, you know, do what I could to help the baseball team win.
0: Sounds so easy, doesn't it,
1: JD? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that strikes me, one of the many things that strikes me in that answer was, uh, you know, the, the approach, um, the mindset, but then Rogers Hornsby, you know, I think, Baseball fans, when there are certain magical names, and you think back to the long history of the game, and Rogers Hornsby, you know, considered by many to be the best right-handed hitter of all time. So, what yeah. what, what was Rogers? What was Hornsby like? Was that you know? I heard he was a little bit of a a tough edge. Oh, Ronnie, Ronnie, <laughs> 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 He
2: was <always> tough <laughs> edge when you talk about him. He had five friends, and I don't know who the other three were because he had Ronnie and I down in Double <laughs> w- baseball. He really taken. Taken liking to us in spring training, he worked with myself and with Ronnie. And I guess you heard the story of when uh, when we were trying to, to to revise the Cubs organization. John Holland had him to go to different uh, different minor leagues to see the baseball players. And when he came to San Antonio, and uh, he had us work out and had everybody else sit in the stand, the whole team sit in the stand, and. He often told guys, hey, listen, you could go home and get a job, you know. And Shano and I was sitting up there, and he looked at us and said, you guys could play in the big league right now, you know. So uh, he came back and told John Holland said, listen, he said, I'm going through every minor league club down there. You have some good players down there, but you don't have players that possibly could play in the big league. You have two guys. You have Ron Shano and Billy Williams. And uh, I think you could bring him up pretty soon. And, uh, you know, he knew players. He knew players. But he was a tough hombre, man. Yeah, he was a good hitter, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah, great. One of the all-time greats. You're right. We're chatting with Hall of Famer Billy Williams. And back to our conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. Here's to the road ahead. Trust Toyota to be here for you. A Toyota hybrid will give you the confidence to go farther than ever. Enjoy advanced tech in the Camry Hybrid. Load up the family in the roomy Highlander Hybrid. Or adventure in the RAV4 Hybrid, the best hybrid SUV for the money. And right now, get 0% financing on every Toyota Hybrid, all from the brand you trust. Today, tomorrow, Toyota. View U.S. News Best Cars at cars.usnews.com on 2020 hybrid models, terms available on approved credit Through participating dealers and Toyota Financial Services, not all customers will qualify, void where prohibited. Offer ends July 6th, 2020. All right, Billy, 1,117 consecutive games played. You did not miss a, a game in seven seasons, a National League record at the time. That's stunning to me. Did you have moments where you were asked to take a day off and you said no chance?
2: Uh, you know, let me, let me tell you about how all this stuff happened, okay? I came up from A baseball, and, and, and I played a little bit when I was in A baseball. So the following year, I went down to AAA baseball and had a great year. I think it was about 320. I hit 320 in AAA. So I got a chance to come to Big League the next year, the following year. And uh, this was 1961. And I started off playing. And after having great double A baseball years and uh, great triple A, and I get to the big league, and I, you know, I, 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 I started to, to struggle. And I was sitting on the bench. I sit on the bench. They took me out of the lineup. I sit on the bench. And a guy by the name of Bob Will. Took the job, took my job. He was playing. And sitting on the bench, I took a lot of stock of myself. I said, when I get back in the lineup, <clears throat> I say they're going to have to this uniform off because I'm not, I'm not getting out of there again. So you go through stages. You go through stages of playing. First of all, I was afraid of somebody taking my job. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in the lineup. I was afraid of that. I wanted to play because I had witnessed that. You know, not having a you know good start, and I sit on the bench. The second phase of it, you know, you 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 you, you say the baseball team can't win unless I'm in the lineup. So that took me through more games, and then you get to a stage. The third stage is you get in a thousand games, so you just sit in. How many games can you play without coming out of the lineup? I know I wasn't going to break Lou Gehrig's record, but I just wanted to play as many games as I could. And uh, there are many times that uh, you know I talked to teammates, other team from other teams too. They said, "Man, you playing every day? Aren't you tired?" I said, "No, I love this game. I really enjoy playing in baseball." So if I had listened to those guys, you know, I I wouldn't have played in that many games. And the one thing I could, I could really appreciate what Carol Rippings went through. And because I, I bet he had had conversation with different players, also, telling him, "You man, you're playing a lot. You know, you you shouldn't play that many games." And Kale loved the game too, and that's why he was in that plan, uh, breaking Lou Gehrig's record.
1: Do you, do you think anybody was resentful,
2: like? You're making us look bad, man. You're
1: playing every day, and that makes it hard for me to take a day off. Yeah.
2: <laughs> probably, probably, probably is. Yeah, uh, uh, let me see. I, 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 I'm I'm trying to remember this individual name, and he played in a few baseball games. You know, about I guess about fifty or sixty games straight. And we was in a shower, uh, Mumphrey. Yeah, I got his name, uh, uh, Mumphrey. Oh, We was in the shower one day, and we were showering together. And he said, uh, he said, uh, man, I'm tired. Man, I'm tired. And he had played in about 50 games. You know, he was a utility player. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, Ma, I know just how you feel after I got to that 1,000 games." (laughs) He said, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry I ever said that. (laughs) But it, it, it was just enjoy playing baseball. I was more comfortable on the baseball field than uh, than, uh, sitting in the dugout. I remember the day I did take the, the off day. Uh, I remember coming to the ballpark that morning and joy, Marfa Tanner said that, uh, you know, uh, 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 Leo got you out of lineup today. And I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't say nothing. I said, well, this is a good time to take the day off. And, uh, I went in the clubhouse. The team was on the field. The, the baseball game started. <clears throat> I was in the clubhouse. Second inning, I came to the dugout. I sit there a while. The fifth inning, I went to the bullpen. The sixth inning, I went back to the dugout. I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, after being in, uh, playing that many games, there was always a time i come in the clubhouse and I was hitting third. Leo had me hitting third, and I knew what I had to do that day. Take a little bat and practice, and play the game. So that's how I get myself uh, for those 162 games. Matter of fact, <clears throat> Santo and I played 164 games one year.
0: That's right. Because the rainouts or makeups, mm-hmm. we had to yeah. go
2: back. We had to go back to Pittsburgh, I think, and play uh, another couple of games there. And yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think people ask, me, how do you how do you guys play 164 games?" We just had to finish the season to see who was going to finish fourth. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, four
1: four four money, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: When, when fans see that a Rizzo or a Baez or a Bryant is out of the lineup and his manager says, you know, don't even put your spikes on. I'm not even going to use you in a big spot. And typically Joe would game uh-huh. you know, on the line, you know, bring Rizzo up in the 10th inning. But oh, yeah. I think one of the reasons that they say, you know, I'm not going to use you at all today is is exactly what you said. And Derek Lee once said it to me, like, if I'm going to be off today, why do I even come to the ballpark? Because his yeah. point was, if I have to go to work, I want to work. And yeah. sometimes you have to tell a player of your caliber, I'm not going to hit you if we're in the 25th inning. You are not playing today, just to make sure that you get that day off, right?
2: I, th- I think if the baseball player knows that. I think it'd be a little easier for him and be a little easy for the manager. You know, he could t- – t- and I've seen that happen. You know, guys said, uh, you're not going to play today. Go home. You know, don't even come yeah. to the park tomorrow. Just stay home. And this is when you get rest because you're not going to get any rest when you come to ballpark. you be around the baseball players and uh, they're out there hitting and you're going <clears> to <throat> go out there and see what they're doing. You're going to come back in the clubhouse. And uh, if you – if you just stay home, you could do different things, enjoy your family, go out there and just just uh you know, you come back the next day uh ready to play the game with a new uh uh energy.
0: Uh, you played with the A's at the end of your career. You were able to get into the postseason uh, for the only time in your career, but I I'm gonna ask you a, a, a strange question. <laughs> You played in some ballparks those last two years that you probably had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Were there any American League parks you were particularly excited uh, to see and and play in since you had spent your entire career in the National League? And as we know, this was decades before interleague play.
2: Uh, I guess uh, the old ballpark, uh, Fenway Park in Boston. Because mm-hmm. uh, it was one of the older ballparks that in the big league, and of course Yankee Stadium, I got a chance to play in Yankee Stadium, and uh, it was a it was a baseball park that uh, when you walk in, immediately you think about the individuals who played there. When you walk in Yankee Stadium, you think about uh, Yogi Berra, Babe Ruth, and people like that. And of course, when you walk in Fenway Park in Boston. You know, you think about Ted Williams, all those individuals who played there. Your Schremchuk, you. uh, we 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 battled for the Batting Title down in Triple A, and uh, those two ballparks. I think I was really, really excited when looking on the schedule and saying that we're going to Boston to play. Or we're going to we're going to play in Yankee Stadium. You're excited by going in there because you think about those. Ballparks have been around a long time, and you just enjoy playing in them. And I think you give an extra. I wouldn't say an extra effort, but you feel good playing in those ballparks.
1: A, a little extra energy, just yeah. Know, to start a lot of the, the way a lot of players feel like when they come into Wrigley. Yeah,
2: yeah, they do. You know, when they come into Wrigley, you playing in a ballpark been around a long time and. You know, there's a lot of history in those ballparks, <clears throat> and uh, it's it's exciting. Another ballpark <clears throat> when when we used to go to Candlestick Park, you know, it was one of the older ballparks. And when you playing in there, I know playing against Willie Mays, you want you wanted Willie Mays to look at you. You look at the Willie Mays, but you wanted Willie Mays to look at you too. And uh, it was just exciting because uh, uh, Willie McCovey, you know, my hometown uh, friend. Uh, He's played with the Giants too, and we just enjoyed playing against each other. But those those three ballparks, I think I enjoyed playing the game. And of course, Dodger Stadium too, because I was a really a Dodger fan. I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, and simply because of Jackie Robinson, I followed uh, the Dodgers. And Duke Schneider was my hero. He was a left-handed hitter. He hit the ball, high, you know, high, wide, and handsome. And I said, I want to do that one day. So, uh, but most of all, the two ballparks most enjoyed playing in was uh, uh, Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park in Boston.
0: Yeah. You mentioned some of the all-time greats uh, you played uh, with and against. Who stood out the most when you were on the same field? Was it Willie Mays? Was it uh, Ernie? I mean, the one guy where you said to yourself, this is the best baseball player I've ever seen.
2: Well, you, 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 you it's got to be uh, uh, Willie Mays. Yeah. It's got to be Willie Mays. I, I've seen that guy, you know, he played in center field. And, uh, you know, I hit balls. He played me, like, straight away uh, a little bit towards the right field, and I hit balls on the left field because I, I used the whole field. And <clears throat> when he going at the ball and he pat his glove, you could, you could go back to the bench because that's when he <laughs> got the ball. You know, when he – He's wide open running, catching the baseball, and uh, he was something. He just – he he was he was a 5-2 player. I mean, he was a 6-2 player because <laughs> he could do so many things. I remember <clears throat> they were telling me that, um, you know, Juan Marshall was going to pitch, and they thought uh, <clears throat> they were stealing the signs from – I think it was Jack Hyde or somebody catching. <clears throat> and Willie said, I will call the pitchers from center field. And he called all the pitches. The pitchers should uh, throw from center field, wow. and it it was something. to see that guy. I think he was he was born to play baseball. Let's say that. Yeah, I've seen. What about i I've seen him run, okay. run around first base, and and he's on first base. And a guy, a guy hit a baseball to right field, and he hit second base, and he'd be looking at the ball in right field, and he. Touch third base. He go right to third base, put his foot right on top of third base, looking in the right field. I've seen that happen with him so many times.
1: Hmm. What about Henry Aaron? He's from your part of the world, right?
2: Yes, he is. He's great, too. Henry's great, too. And, uh, you know, we got a chance to uh, uh, play against each other. When I used to go to uh, uh, Atlanta, there was several people, two buses, two or three buses come over from Mobile to uh, watch us play. You know, uh, they couldn't that's root it. for me and they couldn't root for Aaron. They just said, I'm going to root for the boys from Mobile. Yeah,
1: that's pretty, that's <laughs> a, a pretty fertile area, right? There's a number of guys from Mobile.
2: Yeah, well, we have a lot of good players from Mobile. And, uh, you know, started, uh, 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 uh Satcher Page was from Mobile and Double Duty Radcliffe and Recently, uh, not recently, but a few years back, uh, the Mets had three guys from Mobile. They, they they put in the outfield one time. That was Amos Otis, uh, Cleon Jones, and Tame, Amos Otis, uh, Tommy Agee. And they were three guys playing in the outfield at the time. But McCovey, Aaron, Milton Frank Bowling, <laughs> and uh, who else? I'm forgetting a lot of guys.
0: Well, a more more recent yeah. vintage, Jake Peavy, right? Jake Are Peavy's you? from Mobile. Who? Jake Peavy. Jake I Peavy.
2: Jake picture. Peavy's mm-hmm. from the same hometown as uh, the guy used to pitch for the dog, uh, for the Cubs. Uh, Jake Peavy. Uh, we had a hard throwing guy. I'm trying to think of his name. And and the guy pitched for the uh, for San Diego. He was a starter for us, and then he went to San Diego.
0: Oh, I'll come up with it. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 uh 82 years old now. You know what I'm saying? I'm 49. I'm very 49, forgetful. Yeah. My, my <laughs> keep me posted. But right, uh, right. we have a lot of players. Uh, I remember one year, you know, right before we went to spring training, uh, we didn't do anything. But uh, AG myself. And uh, Tommy Agee, we used to go to bowling alley and bowl. That's the heaviest thing I picked up during the winter. And, of course, uh, just before the spring training started, we would call around. We would call around and said, uh, we're going to take some batting practice. We're going to get ready to go to spring training. And each guy, you know, each day we have a couple, two or three rounds. Then afterwards, we go sit in the stands at Carver Stadium where Aaron was born. And we're sitting in the stand. And, of course, Aaron talked baseball tell us about the pitching and everything in the big league. And, uh, you know, we did that for about two or three weeks. And all of a sudden we say, we'll see you down the road, man. Yeah. So uh, we took off and we went to spring training. And as the baseball season started, that's the next time we saw the guys from Mobile.
0: Hmm. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Roberto Clemente.
2: Clemente, Clemente was, had one of the greatest arms I ever seen in the game of baseball. Uh, there are a picture of me going from first base to third, and I thought I had it made easy. And the ball was up against the wall, and he threw the ball about two or three feet from right field wall into third base. And as you know, the guy tagged me out, and I was out. But Clemente was a great player. He played the game hard and he did so many great things on the baseball field. Uh, I think the one time that uh, one thing that happened when he played in the World Series, I think that was a stage for Clemente because he had such good uh, World Series and a lot of people knew at that time what kind of player he was. Mm -hmm. He was a guy that uh, used the whole field, he stood way off the plate. And everybody was saying that uh, the pitchers would say, well, I'm going to throw him outside. If they did that, I'm playing right field, i got to be ready because he could hit the ball at right field just like a left-handed hitter. And I remember a couple of times they said, well, if he that good on the outside part of the plate, maybe he couldn't hit the ball inside. So they threw the ball inside, he probably hit it off left field. And he <laughs> ran good. It was uh, – you know, it wasn't. A, it was a smooth run. It was a violent run. You know, but he got the job done. Uh, he was. He was pretty fast. He was. He. 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 Aaron and Willie Mays. That kept me off the All Star team a few years because they were, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, pretty a, a powerful uh,
1: group to try to break in against.
2: Yeah, yeah, trying to break in to play to make the All Star team. I, you know, those guys did it every year. Yeah.
1: Hey, I got a tri- I got a trivia question for you,
2: Billy. Okay.
1: Who is the pitcher that you hit the most home runs off in your career?
2: Oh, that's easy. That's Bob Gibson. <laughs> Don't say that too loud though. <laughs> <He's> the, he <laughs> might take
1: a shot at you still, huh? You
2: know, yeah, you know, you know Bob Gibson, that honorary sucker. Yeah. He he stood on the mound and he really he he really say, I'm gonna get him out with this pitch. I'm gonna get him out with this pitch and uh he he had that good slider piece down and in, and he he was pitching right to my power and uh as he threw it down there, I was swing and uh you know hit the ball out the ballpark but uh it was just one of those things I saw him real good uh, did he uh,
1: did he ever back you off the plate Did he ever try oh, yeah. to intimidate you
2: oh, yeah well, that was this thing you know you couldn't hit you couldn't hit two home runs off it nobody could hit two home runs off him hit one. one. You hit one, and you better run back to the dugout. You know, like guys now flip the bat and all that stuff. Nuh-uh, not on Gib. But you used to see that a lot. You know, you could hit one home run, but uh, <clears throat> two home runs, and you 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 show the pitcher up. The next time you come up, you knock down. But that mm-hmm. was the game. That's how we played the game at the time.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, re- I remember. Uh, I think it was Art Hal telling a story as a young player, and he hit a home run off Gibson. And he put his head down and he sprinted around the bases and when he got in the dugout, he wouldn't look out and he just kept he just kept asking, Is he looking in here? Is he looking at me? Is he you
2: know, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kinda of like Nolan Ryan too. You know, you bun yeah. on Nolan yeah. Ryan, he walk over there and pick up the ball and look at your heart. Mm-hmm. And that was it, man. That was it. But yeah, you didn't you didn't you didn't you didn't do that. You didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I remember we was in a game one day, the the Cardinals playing here the St. Louis Cardinals playing here. And uh, Bob was throwing the ball, seemed like it was taking off a little high and everything. And uh, Tim McCarver jumped up and called timeout, and he started coming to the mound, and Bob Gibson waved him back, said, go back, go back. Don't come out here. The only thing you know about pitching, you can't hit it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he Brilliant. was – Bob Bob. Bob was a guy that, uh, you know, when you face him, you had a battle. And I think the one thing that happened with Fergie and Bob Gibson pitching the game didn't last long. I always make it a plan to do something after the game, because you knew the game was going to be like two hours, two and a half hours. It wasn't going to be that long.
0: Right. Right. One of of the most uh, cherished photographs I have is from spring training about 10 years ago in the dugout between Ron Santo and Billy Williams. And, um, I often think about how much Ronnie would have loved the 2016 world champs. I think a lot about how Ernie uh, would have adored uh, that team as well. Uh, We sadly lost uh, one of your, your teammates, Glenn Beckert recently, but Mm -hmm. um, what a great group of guys. And uh, I think it's been just awesome uh, that they've all been able to, to be around the ballpark and uh, sing the stretch and, you know, all the great Hall of Famers. Lee Smith now is in that group of Hall of Famers. Uh, it, it's, it's really been a, an amazing group of Cubs alumni, hasn't it?
2: It really have. It really have. And, and of course, you mentioned uh, Ronnie and you mentioned Ernie and, uh, you know, like Fergie. Uh, but I'm mostly thinking about Ernie and uh, Ron Santo. And when, uh, when Rizzo caught that ball... And put it in his back pocket. <laughs> immediately, I thought of Ernie, and I thought about Sano. How many times they went to the ballpark, hitting home runs, try to get Cubs in the World Series. And Ernie always said, "We're gonna win. We're gonna we're gonna win this year. We're gonna be there this year." So I immediately thought about those guys. I said, "What would have been nice if they had been here to help me celebrate this thing because it was so exciting." And uh you know, I thought about those guys. I thought about those guys.
0: Let's end on a high note. You've got a birthday coming up. What thirty uh,
2: nine? <laughs> yeah. Jack Jack Vinny.
1: <laughs> That's well, what he
2: used to say. But 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 I'll be I'll be seventy two, uh, eighty two when my birthday come up. I try to get seventy two. But uh, I'll be 82 years old and seemed like it was just yesterday I was playing baseball and it seemed like it was just yesterday I was running and uh, you know I, 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 I being 82 years old time go by so fast and uh, it, it, it has been a, a really you know a great thing to, uh, to, 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 to to have that many years under your belt
0: Well, one of the great things for JD and me when we get to Wrigley Field is when we see Billy Williams in the dugout. Man, it just is uh, so good to see you all the time. And I hope it happens again here in a few weeks. Take care of Shirley and your family. And thank you so much for your time.
2: I sure will. And you guys take care. And and, uh, we're going to look for baseball in the next, I guess, next three weeks. We got to start this season up because a lot of people hunger for baseball. I know when the. We left uh, left the uh, convention. I know everybody was excited going to spring training, and most of the time you're ready for the season. And all of a sudden, because of this Corona virus, everything has stood still, and everybody began to be in a wait and see mode. And I think basketball, football, baseball, people wanted to see that on television, and I think we're going to do that in the next few uh, next well next three weeks we can't wait too long in baseball though
0: that's right thanks billy thank you
2: guys you guys take care stay safe Uh, be well Uh
0: what a guy billy williams as he mentioned he'll turn 82 uh in a few days and uh Man, I always love being around the batting cage, J.D., with Billy. is He can break down a swing. <laughs> he can see a guy in BP take like three swings, and he can tell you what type of hitter he is.
1: Yeah, he's hes, he's so much fun to talk to. I remember one day talking to him about the launch angle, and he goes, I don't believe in launch angle. It's just if the pitch was high, I'd just put a flat, flat swing on it and hit it out of the ballpark. He didn't, he didn't overthink it, but he had such a, a beautiful short stroke and was such an accomplished hitter. And unlike many who are really great, he could teach it. You know, a lot of a lot of great players aren't good coaches, but Billy uh, Billy was. And um, for me, I've been around a lot of people around this game, and I, I'm not going to pretend to know Billy intimately. Um, but he's, t- he's one of the nicest guys I've ever been around at a ballpark. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah, there's no question. Uh, one other note about Billy, and this tells you about the era in which he played. He was the Cubs' first $100,000 a year ball player, and I think it was 1971 or 72. And that was a huge deal at the time to get to six digits. And I mentioned in our interview, JD, that Billy was a very modern ball player in that he had a high on base percentage. What would his slash line be worth today on the open market?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. He'd be a you know thirty million dollar a year player, and and uh, Ronnie Santo was the same way. Uh, Santo was undervalued. He he was a guy who walked a ton, and so uh, two guys that uh, that were modern players, as you mentioned, with that skill set of patience, uh, discipline, and power. The major
0: league draft was last night. Uh, we are recording this podcast actually prior to the draft. We're recording. On Wednesday afternoon. So, you know, I was thinking about asking you to tell us who the Cubs picked and to see if you could first guess it. But I'm guessing you have not broken down the draft very specifically. They have the 16th pick in the first round. And then uh, I think the biggest thing with this draft is not only it's a virtual draft, but five rounds and then kind of a free for all for free agents, but only a $20,000 cap to sign those guys.
1: Right. So it's, it's obviously a very strange time to be an amateur player. And I think a lot of kids uh, coming out of high school that might have been inclined to sign will go to college. And I think a lot of college juniors will go back for their senior year uh, as opposed to signing those $20,000 free agent contracts. And, um, you know, I think rounds one through five will probably look very much like uh, drafts have in, in previous years. But, yeah, then it's, it's a, it's a crapshoot after that. It's unfortunate. Um, because of the economics of the game and the virus and everything else that's that's going on that this has come to pass. Um, But it's just it's another asterisk in the the record books for baseball uh, during the era of the uh, coronavirus. At last check,
0: uh, the Players Union and Major League Baseball continue to swap offers. Uh, They have all essentially been rejected at this point. I suppose if a miracle occurred, uh, there was a deal before we started uh, or aired this uh, podcast this week. I would like to think by our next podcast next week, J.D., there will be a deal of some kind. You would hope it's a negotiated uh, agreement. But in the end, if no such thing occurs, it sounds like the commissioner is going to say, this is going to be our season. Let's go.
1: Right. The the players back in March agreed to um – you know, a, a season that would pay them a you know, 100% um, or, you know, a prorated salary for the number of games played. The sticking point is obviously the players have pushed for more games, which would mean more salary. Uh, the clubs have said no, they don't want to play as many games. They want to make sure the regular season ends in September. They don't want to commit that much money to the players. Um, so I think that's probably the most likely outcome of this that the commissioner ends up saying, here's the schedule, let's go play ball. Um, you know, I've heard rumors of 48 to 54 games. I, I hope it's more than that. I, you know, something close to half a season feels, you know, a lot like more like baseball to me than a 50 game season does. Um, so we'll see, I, you know, you're, you're right. I think we will play just how much we'll play. Nobody really knows the answer yet.
0: Uh, I think we were remiss the last time around in uh, doing our, our weekly admission. So I will go first this week. Uh, and I'm, I'm. This, <laughs> we're digging deep here. Uh, I haven't been able to get out of bed before eight o'clock during this shutdown in the morning. Now I wake up every morning well before eight, and I typically, I typically contemplate getting on with my day, and then I remember I don't have anything to do until one thirty or two thirty, <laughs> or on the early side ten thirty, and I just linger and I don't get up. What's wrong with me?
1: Nothing. I think that's perfectly, perfectly normal. I think that's what probably most people are experiencing. Yeah, there, there, there needs to be a name for it. Some kind of a syndrome, like there's too much time in the day syndrome <laughs> because you don't right. know what to do with yourself if you get up. Um, well, I haven't had that problem here because we're on the river and the sun comes beating in through the windows at about 4.30 in the morning and the birds are chirping. So it's been uh, kind of early wake-up calls for me since we've been up here. Um, my... Uh, general admission concession confession. Um, oh, I like it, it, struck, that. it struck me because back here in my hometown I got thinking about my, my younger days and I think it's fairly unique to this little town that I'm from in northern New York. Um, you know all people if they go out in the town and they might enjoy a couple of adult beverages, a lot of times they'll go eat afterwards and they'll go to a diner. Um, well the food of choice when I was like college age and beyond, was macaroni salad with gravy slathered all over it. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it wasn't even a special order. It was on the menu and you could even get a double order if you wanted. I think it was a you know, mac salad and you throw another nickel in there and you get gravy poured all over it. By golly, didn't that feel good the next day?
0: Oh, that sounds like the, the kind of thing you can only eat after midnight.
1: Yeah, and it must be, it's probably related. It's probably like poor man's poutine or something like that i don't know the origins of it but man it was good
0: open concessions presented by toyota uh, special thanks to matt ramido daniel green jim oboykowicz max Berman, joe rios adam sobel and for jd i'm len make sure you subscribe rate review and share it with your friends we'll talk to you next week